Uh, at this time, if you can open up your Bibles to the book of Exodus, we're continuing our series um, through the wilderness wanderings of Israel. And um, Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to read verses 1 through 21. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 21. I'm going to give you guys some time to get there. Uh, but this is probably one of the most famous scriptures of all the Bible. Uh, both people inside and outside the church are familiar with the Ten Commandments. And actually, when we look at our world, a lot of the um, uh, civic, uh, political, even the judicial order has shaped their ideas around the Ten Commandments. And so for many of us, it's very, very uh, familiar. Um, but if we look at the Ten Commandments simply as something that's pragmatic or just utilitarian, a, a list of rules to shape our lives around, I think we're going to miss uh, some of the most important uh, ideas that God wanted to communicate to his people through these Ten Commandments. And so although this is very familiar for many of us, I'm hoping uh, to show us that there's such beauty uh, and value in these commands. And we're going to see actually the heart of God. And so let's give our full attention as I read uh, this amazing passage for us, starting at verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to, those, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be, may be before you, that you may not sin. The people the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is God's word. Amen. You know, I have a, um, I have a pretty big family. Uh, I, have a, I have still a lot of family members up in uh, Seattle, Washington. And uh, I have even more family in Korea. And every uh, once in a while, I have an opportunity to go to Korea to see my extended family and my, and my cousins. And there's just so many of them. Uh, but in these gatherings, there can be a lot of um, tension and awkwardness. 
because they look familiar to me, but I don't know exactly how we're related. Uh, and so when I see them, like, because in the Korean culture, it's very important to know the age and the order because that's when you know if you're supposed to bow or if that person's supposed to bow to you. Uh, and so I need to figure out who these people are and how they're related to me so that I can address them properly. And so I would ask someone, hey, how is this person related to me? And they'll tell me, oh, that's your dad's sister's daughter's daughter. And I'm like, okay, that makes her my niece. So she needs to bow to me, <laughs> right? Because in, in the Korean culture, this is very, very important. Uh, but there are, there's this, these kind of weird, awkward moments when I'm seeing my extended family, uh, family members. And the reason why I share this with you is because when it comes to the Ten Commandments, I think it's very similar. For many of us, it, we recognize it. It's familiar, but we don't know how to address it. Or we don't know how it's relevant for our lives today. Because it's an Old Testament law, but yet I'm a New Testament Christian. And so we do this kind of like awkward dance when it comes to the Old Testament, when it comes to the Ten Commandments. What I want to share with us uh, today is that the degree of separation between us as Christians and the Ten Commandments is not that big. It's actually quite close. We are a lot closer than we think. Our relationship with the law should not be so tentative. We should not hesitate with it. And a proper understanding of the law will actually lead us to a great excitement and a zeal to know it and to obey it. There are three ideas regarding the law that I want to unpack for us today. First is the heart of the law. Secondly is the functions of the law. And lastly, our approach to the law. The heart of it, the function of it, and then our approach to it. So first, the heart of the law. Um, you know, Jane and I, um, as our kids are getting older, it's becoming more and more difficult to parent them. And, and to be honest, um, Jane and I, we, we fail in showing grace, mercy, and patience to our kids. Uh, and that's because our kids are devious sinners. And, and I'm not making an excuse. I'm just sharing you the facts and so when they sin, it brings out our sinfulness, and we're just a house full of sinners. Um, but Jane and I, uh, in the Chong household, we have a lot of rules for our kids, a lot of them, right? Uh, when you're eating, you eat at the table, and after you're done eating, you can play, right? You got to brush your teeth before you go to sleep. Do not hit your sister or your brother. Uh, be generous, be kind, right? Share your toys with one another. Right? Go to sleep. Please go to sleep. Right? We have all these rules that we, we try to enforce in our family. And this one time that I was telling Deacon to do something, I don't remember exactly what. Oh, Deacon's my firstborn, so I have a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. Right? Boy, girl, girl. My deacon, uh, my son, Deacon. I tell, him, I tell him to do something, and, and as he's walking away, he whispers something. He whispered something. I don't think he, he knew that I heard it, right? That's why he said it. He whispered. He's like, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> I heard it. And I just, I was enraged, right? And I said, Deacon, come back here. Look at me. I am the boss of you. 
you do what I tell you, right? And my son being very sensitive like me, he, he, he cries and he runs away. Because <laughs> then I gave him my death stare, right? And, and later on, I had to go and find him. He goes to his second, uh, you know, we have bunk beds. So he goes to the second when he's sad. So I had to go to him. I had to explain to him, hey, I'm your dad. I'm not your boss, but I'm your dad. And the reason why I have these rules for you, that I, I want you to grow and mature because this world is very difficult to live in. So, so I'm giving you and telling you to do these things, not because I, I hate you or not because I find joy in it. It's because it's for you. I want you to grow and mature and, and build up these characteristics that, so that you can thrive in this world and you can thrive in your relationship with God. And so I tell him these things. I think many of us, we have this similar kind of mentality as deacon when we look at the law. Right? We, we don't like an idea of having a boss, an overbearing boss over our lives. Right? Kids before a certain age, they don't understand why the parents tell them to do so many things and tell them not to do so many things. They just don't understand it. Because, you know, for us, as we're older, we, we know what this world is like. Right? We know how hard it can be. And so we want to prepare them for life in this world. And that's why we do these things. But our kids, they don't understand it. And so we try to enforce these rules and reinforce them by rewarding them. But we also discipline them for not following the rules. Right? Any healthy parent who understands how this world operates wants to establish boundaries to teach them principles so that these kids can build up characteristics so that they can succeed in life and with God. How much more will this be true for our God who actually created everything, who designed you and me? We bear his image. Who's going to know how to live in this world and to relate with God better than God himself? No one. He is our God. He is our creator and and he wants to instruct us and teach us how to live this life in the fullness of joy. And that is why he gives us the law. And so here at Mount Sinai, God, before giving the law, reminds them, Israel, of who he is and what he has done for them. Verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, we've emphasized this over and over again throughout this series, and it's worth mentioning again. I won't ever get sick and tired of this. Before God gave Israel the law, he redeemed and rescued them out of his sovereign grace. Israel did nothing to deserve this rescue. It's not like they, they reformed. It's not like they had a good and, and full understanding of who God was. Their faith wasn't even fully developed. But yet, despite all of that, God hearing his, their cry and remembering his covenant rescued them from slavery. And upon rescuing them, he then gives them the law for them to obey and to follow. See, obedience was commanded after deliverance, not for it. And that is so important for us to remember and even the obedience that God demanded from his people wasn't to stroke his ego, but it was for them to experience freedom, to live freely, to know what it's like to be his people. 
You know, Graham Goldsworthy, an author and theologian, this is what he says. The task of obedience is given because the relationship of sonship has already been established as an undeserved gift. This is a very good summary and description of what God did with Israel in Exodus. Israel was his son. He rescued his son from slavery. And then he gave them the law. And what's astounding here in this encounter that God has with his people at Sinai is that God himself audibly spoke these commands to them for the first time. Not through Moses. He asked the people to draw near to the edge of the mountain and there was a voice that came out, God's voice to everyone. And this is, this is so important because this is the first time he's done this. And as parents, when we really want our kids' attention, what do we do? Hey, look at me. Look into my eyes and hear what I'm about to tell you. This is what God is doing for his child Israel. He's speaking to them. And this shows the importance of the Ten Commandments. And, and we're not going to go through each and every command. It's, it's, it, you know, that can be a ten-part series. I, I have the task of trying to summarize and capture the heart of the law for all of us today. So I just want to share about and unpack the first command. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. And if we think about it, if we give our lives to try and cherish and actually obey this law, this first law, I think it would be very difficult for us to violate the other nine. If we kept this in our hearts and we, we with, with zeal, tried to not worship other gods, I really think it's going to be difficult to break the other nine. But it's such an interesting command. If you look at this law, it's, it's, the wording of it is very interesting. You shall have no other gods before me. It almost sounds like God is conceding to the fact that there are other gods in this world. But we know as Christians that's not true. There's only one God, and that's Yahweh. Why not command, I'm the only God, worship only me? That, that just seems like it will just be it's just clear. But yet he says, no other gods. Now we have to remember where Israel came from. They came from Egypt. Egyptians were polytheists. They worshipped all sorts of God. Now yet 400 years of slavery, being surrounded by idol worship, and being surrounded by all these different gods. Right? Ra, Osiris, Shu, Horus. These were all the gods of Egypt. There's so many more. And, and if we look at the, the plagues that God um, miraculously just showed, right, in, in Egypt, each plague was targeted at a specific God of Egypt. Why? To demonstrate that he is over them. He is supreme. He is more powerful than these false gods. And so God defeated all the gods, uh, so God defeated all the gods of Egypt. In the, uh, in the ten plagues. And so what he's doing here is he's trying to demonstrate that he is supreme. That he is the only God. And even in the wilderness wandering, what, what God is trying to do is remove those, the, the, the experience of those gods and to introduce to them in a new way who he is as Yahweh. Who he is as Yahweh. 
He's going to recalibrate their worship. He's going to rehabilitate his people out of 400 years of slavery. And that is what God is doing here in the wilderness, to rehabilitate them, to recalibrate them. You know, in college, um, I, I broke my left ankle playing basketball. Uh, and and uh, I had to get it surgically, surgically repaired. There's still metal in there. And I was in a cast for several, uh, I think, couple months. Couple months. And after a couple months, the cast came off. Oh, my gosh, the smell. It was horrible. Right? Because you can't, you can't wash that part of there. So when they took it off, it, the smell was horrendous. But at the same time, I realized something about my left calf. It was way smaller than my right calf. Like, it was, like, disturbingly, grossly... Like, like, it was just, there's no muscle there, right? Because that's what happens when you don't use <laughs> your, your, your left leg or your left calf. And it's called atrophy, right? For those that know this term, it, it means it's, it's, it de- degenerated because I wasn't using it. And so it shrank. Now, what I have to do after atrophy is to re- rehab it slowly, right? Moving my toes, right? Moving, moving my foot back and forth. And eventually being able to put weight on it. It took me several months for it to be back on the basketball court. But it was very hard and it was very painful. Now, the Israelites, after 400 years of slavery, have spiritually atrophied. They have spiritually atrophied. They have not exercised their faith. They were surrounded by a pagan culture. They don't know what it's like to worship God. Because of 400 years, they just, they just were oppressed and abused by Pharaoh. And so what God is doing in the wilderness and on Mount Sinai is he's rehabbing them, helping them regain their strength, to regain their faith. And here in the Ten Commandments, he's giving them a little bit of heavier exercise. That's how I like to think of it, a little bit heavier weight. Not to oppress them, not to weigh down on them, but so that they can regain their faith so that they can freely be his people. And that's why we have the Ten Commandments. It's for greater freedom and greater joy. See, brothers and sisters, there's only one God, and that's Yahweh. But the interesting thing is, humans, we possess the ability to attribute divinity to anything and anyone. We can make anything and anyone a God in our lives. If we hold it at such a high value, if it's so precious to us where we cannot live without those things, we have attributed divinity to those things. Whether it's money, success, fame, friendships, your children, your family, when we make these a supreme value, we've attributed divinity to it. And there's one thing that's true about all these false gods that we try to find in this world. They overpromise and underdeliver. They overpromise and underdeliver. We think that if we get more money, it's going to give us more freedom. If we think that if everyone or if I get the approval of this group, then I'm going to have more joy. But what happens? You get a little bit. These people approve of you, but then you find out someone else doesn't approve of you. What happens then? That idol, we have to constantly appease these idols and these gods, but they can never satisfy. Why? Because they are all temporary. 
They're fleeting. They change. Money, success, approval, comfort. It's like trying to grab air. They overpromise and underdeliver. And so God says, don't worship these gods. Don't give yourself to them. Don't sacrifice for them. Because that's just going to lead you into deeper emptiness. It's going to have you wanting more. See, the deeper we give ourselves to these false gods, right, the tighter the chain becomes. It's not freedom. It's actually deeper slavery. We think that we have a, we have a grasp of these idols. I, I got a handle on my idols. I got a handle on my gods. But actually, these gods grip you. And they control you. They make you anxious and fearful. And that is why God says, do not worship any of these other gods. Worship me. This first commandment is telling us to make God the primary object of our affections and our joy. And that's the most loving thing that God can command to us because we were designed by him and for him. Have no other gods. Brothers and sisters, do you see it? The heart of the law is love. It's not to guilt us. It's not to shame us, but it is to help us understand his love and help us to love him back. See, God love, uh, God's love seeks to free us from our oppressors and to rehabilitate us to be his child. The laws aren't restrictions, but rather provisions to live freely as his. The question that we have to answer for ourselves is, do I see God as an over, overbearing boss? Or do I see God and his laws as, uh, in a way as if he's our loving father? You know, when we take a step back and look at the, the greater scope of the Ten Commandments, we're going to see that it has a very pointed purpose and function for us. And this brings us to our second point. There are th- there, there, I want to share th- the threefold function of the law. The threefold function of the law. And the first is it serves as a mirror. It serves as a mirror. It reflects to us God's character and nature. When we look at the Ten Commandments, we see who he is. He is God. He is holy. He is pure. Righteous. Right? That's what the mirror reflects to us. And the second thing that it reflects to us is that we are not. That we are unholy, unrighteous. We are sinful. We cannot obey the laws. It's too hard. And so it shows us our imperfections. So the law gives us knowledge about the lawgiver and it reveals the truth that we are the law breakers. And it's through these Ten Commandments we understand that we are born with a sinful disposition. Like we don't have to learn these things. We don't have to learn sin. We are born with it. And so the law shows us clearly of who God is and his perfection. And at the same time, it shows us all our blemishes, all our flaws. That is why this is the standard. The word is the standard of our righteousness. Not by comparing ourselves to others. That's easy. You should always be able to find someone that's better than you. Or or that you're better than. And also that's better than you. And so that's not a good way of evaluating your holiness. God's word, his commands, tells us very clearly that we fall short. So that's first function of the law. Secondly, it's a restraint on evil. It's a restraint on evil. 
See, the commands and the rules of God is not just showing up first for the first time here at Sinai. We actually see it in the Garden of Eden. God gives us God gives rules and commands for Adam and Eve. But you will notice a very different kind of way that God shares his rules and laws. If you look at the Garden of Eden, his laws are all permissive. He gives Adam and Eve permission. Be fruitful and multiply. Have children. You could have all the trees to eat from. Don't eat from that one tree. Keep the land and work it. Exercise dominion. Do you hear all the commands? All permission. You get to do all these things. When we get to Sinai, do you notice? It's all prohibitions. You shall not. Don't do that. Now, why is there such a discrepancy and a difference in the way that God is delivering the law? It just shows how bad things have gotten at Mount Sinai. How sinful and how corrupt and wicked the people are. And that's why we have prohibitions in the Ten Commandments and not so much permission. It shows that we are so depraved, that we are so hopeless. Right? So the law is given to us to restrain our evil tendencies and our hearts. To limit the capacity of our sinfulness against God and against one another. See, although the law cannot change our, and transform our hearts, it could restrain it, especially the evil that's within our hearts. Romans chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no, uh, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, what Paul is saying here is that the laws of the land that govern us, we should obey them. Even though they're not the Ten Commandments. Because there is justice. There's going to be judgment if we break the laws of the land. So he's telling us, be faithful. Be faithful. Follow the rules of the, uh, of the land. Right? And that's why we have speed limits. So that we don't kill each other. Drive, right? 65 miles per hour, 70 miles per hour. Don't, don't exceed that, right? When we see that, it restrains us, doesn't, does it not? It's, it makes us a little, slow down a little bit. So Paul is saying, hey, the law is there to restrain evil that's within us. Lastly, the law teaches how to please God, how to please our Heavenly Father. It helps, it helps us to see the fruit of our faith, because God wants our obedience. And Jesus desires your obedience. He tells his disciple, you have to obey all that I have taught you. He wants our obedience. Because that is what brings him pleasure. Faith. Faithful obedience brings God delight. See, but faithfulness to the law cannot get God, us, get God to love us. But rather, it's a sign that we are loved by God. And that is an important distinction to make. So Jesus taught his disciples in John chapter 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. See, when we get to the New Testament, the leaders of Israel misunderstood and misused the law. They, they used the law to create strong lines and distinctions of those who belong to God and those who did not 
They use it in a legalistic way to keep people, keep other people, especially those on the margins, at an arm's length from God's presence. You got to do this. You got to do that. You got to act like this. You got to act like that. And then God will accept you. That is not the heart of the law. We need to understand the proper place of the law in relation to the Christian life. See, the problem with the religious leaders in Jesus' day is that they made the law as a gateway to salvation when it was actually meant for us to enjoy salvation. Do you guys hear the difference? They use it as you got to follow the law to get salvation. The law is given to us so that we can enjoy salvation more. So that we know what it means to be redeemed and to be freed from all the other false gods. And so this brings us to our last idea. How do we then approach the Ten Commandments? Is it supposed to bow to us? Are we supposed to bow to him? Right? How are we to relate with the law? And what, what role does it have in our lives today? The question we have to ask is how do we keep the law from condemning us and overwhelming us with guilt? And at the same time, how do we prevent ourselves from being dismissive of the law and live in sin. How do we do this both? Where it's not overwhelming us with guilt, but at the same time we're not ignoring it and just living a life of sin. In other words, how do we not become legalistic or licentious? I want to read um, verses 18 and tw- uh, through 21 uh, for us one more time. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The Israelites were terrified, and rightfully so, and unrightfully so, because God invited them to the edge of the mountain to hear his voice. But they were afraid, because it was God that was speaking to them, and they understood that they were imperfect and sinful. And so they asked Moses, hey, you speak for me. You speak for God, lest we die. And what we hear is that Moses drew near to God, and the people stood far off. Moses was a mediator. For his people to a holy God. Church, we too need a mediator. The way that we approach the Ten Commandments is through Jesus Christ, who is our middleman. But unlike Moses, who disobeyed God and failed to go into the promised land, Jesus Christ faithfully obeyed all of God's laws and fulfilled all of its requirements. So Jesus is a greater mediator. That we, have, uh, that, that, that we have than Moses. And Jesus came teaching the law. He summarized the law saying, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so he actually taught the Ten Commandments. But if you read his version, he deepens the meaning of the Ten Commandments. He says things like this, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say to you, even if you look at another person with lustful eyes, you've already committed adultery. You've heard it said, do not commit murder. 
But if you have hatred in your heart for your brother, you've already committed murder. So what, is, what are we learning from this? God is after our hearts. He's after our, our motivation. He's not after just our external behavior. He's wanting our hearts. And so Jesus taught this. Jesus is the lawgiver, and he's at the same time the law fulfiller. But what does he do on the cross? Although he's sinless, guiltless, he dies as a lawbreaker on your, on your behalf and my behalf. He takes our place. And just like Moses who ascends to the mountain to speak with God, we do hear Jesus making a trek high up the mountain in Mark chapter 9. He takes Peter, James, and John with him. And Jesus is transfigured. He is transformed. He is glorified. And who's there with him? Elijah and Moses is there at that mountaintop. And you know what's crazy? At, at, at that time, a, cl a cloud comes around too, just like here in Sinai. A cloud, a cloud comes around. Jesus is glorified at this time. But what's amazing about the gospel is, as Moses, right, and as he sees the thick darkness and the glory that God is at the height, height of the mountain, what do we see Jesus do in Mark chapter 9? He condescends. He descends and he reveals himself in his glory to all the people. He drew near to us. When the people stood far off at Sinai, Jesus comes down and descends and he draws near to you and me to show us this is how much I love you. I want you to experience God as your father so I'm here and he dies for you and me. For us lawbreakers, what was veiled in Exodus and mysterious in Exodus is now made fully revealed, is fully revealed in Jesus Christ in the Gospels. See, all of the religions in this world, they'll tell us, hey, you gotta ascend the mountain. You gotta, you gotta find your way up to God. It is only in Christian faith and in the gospel where God condescends to us. Brothers and sisters, we can never ascend. God's law requires perfection. We can ascend. That's why Jesus had to descend. So that he, by his death and resurrection, we can ascend to God. He gives us a new heart. A new heart, a new life, so that we can see God as our Father. And we can see the law as liberating and not oppressive. This is the good news of the gospel. Through Jesus Christ, by trusting in his finished work, the law no longer becomes a threat. It is no longer oppressive to us. There is no pressure because he's died for our sins. He fulfilled its requirements and then he gives us his righteousness. So the law can now be a delight, a delight to us. You know, every Valentine's day or when it comes around there's so much pressure for me um i have a wife and i have two daughters and, and my wife uh, grow, uh grew up with her dad always showering her with gifts on valentine's day and so for me there's a lot of pressure uh, and my wife's love language is actually gifts gifts um but not just any gifts she knows exactly what she wants like that's that's my wife her personality she's particular about everything 
how our coffee is made, her boba, everything is just so down to the detail, right? And so I get anxious anytime I have to think about a gift I need to get to Jane, uh, give, give Jane. And, and so, you know, we've been married for 10 years now, almost 10 years now. Um, she knows that I struggle with this. And so this is what she does when uh, Valentine's Day rolls around or weeks before, she starts sending me texts and pictures of things that she wants, like specific flowers, not just like just roses, like specific arrangements, flowers. Hey, this is exactly what I want. And I was thinking about, like, man, this is just so hard, right? Why can't it just be spontaneous and just romantic? Why can't I just give her whatever she wants, like what I think, right, would be, you know, good. But when I really sit back and think about it, I really appreciate it that Jane is so specific and she tells me exactly what she wants so that when I buy it, it's not a waste of money. Right? And then when I give her exactly what she wants, I see the joy and delight. Even though she knows it's coming, she's still very much excited about it. And I'm filled with gratitude because she, uh, she loves the gift that I got her. Now, why do I share this with you guys? God has not left us in the dark of what brings him joy. He tells us exactly what he wants from us, and that is the law. But remember this, we are already united to Jesus. We are his children. So the law is not so that we can get more of his love or to to get status with him, but it's because we already have status with him. We are his children. He's a loving father that's telling us, hey, this is how, this is is what I delight in. So obey it. And what you're going to discover as you obey it, you're going to experience delight yourself because God is pleased. Isn't that what we want in our relationship with God? He gives us his word. He does not leave us in the dark. So all our efforts when it comes to the Ten Commandments is simply a response to the love that we've received. We should be enthusiastic in knowing what the law is and we should be zealous for actually in obeying it as well. Because through it, God delights in it and we experience that delight and it just fills us with joy. But here's the bad news. If you're not a Christian here today, the law can only make you feel guilty. It's going to be too heavy for you to to bear. But I want you to consider Jesus Christ today. If you're not a believer here, the law can be a delight to you through Jesus Christ, who is our law giver and law fulfiller on your behalf. He gave himself for you so you can be restored and renewed and experience reconciliation, communion with God. If that's you, I want to ask you to consider that. And if you, want, if you have questions about that, please come talk to me or any of the pastors. We'll love to pray for you. But all nations, I, I really hope that we can grow in obeying the law. It's okay to say that. It's not legalistic. It's for us to experience more joy and freedom in him. That's why he gives it to us. So brothers and sisters, let's look at the law. Let's know it. And let's do our best to obey it. Because God wants us to experience his delight in them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much um, for your love. Where you did not remain in the height of the mountain, shrouded in that thick darkness. But Lord, in Jesus Christ, you condescended. You descended to us. You stooped down to show us your love. And not only that, God, you you lived in perfect obedience. 
Jesus, you lived in perfect obedience to your Father's laws. But yet you took our place on that cross. Died for our sins. Rose again. So that we can experience newness of life. God, you're so good to us. Help us, Lord, to see you as you, for who you really are, and that is our sovereign, loving Father who gives us good gifts. Help us to trust you. Give us the faith to believe. Give us the eyes to see that you are our loving Father. And as all nations, help us to be a church that faithfully tries to obey your laws so that we can tell others and and demonstrate to others of how good you are. So Lord, I I pray uh, for for those of us who struggle to see you in that way, who sees you as an oppressive boss, help us to see you as a loving father. We need your help. Holy Spirit, we need your help. So may you increase our faith. May you deepen our affections for you. We need your help to do that. We give you all the praise, glory, and honors. In Jesus' name we pray.